0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting behind the broadcast microphone here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Studios in Antigua. And as usual for this program, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening
1: to those people who might be listening this evening.
0: We are thankful that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here on That's Truth. Pastor, we have a number of questions here that we're going to cover, and then we're going to jump back into the topic of demonology, Lord willing. A Facebook message that came in Would you consider Jesus to be a Jew or a Gentile? If you consider him to be a Jew, why do the Jewish people reject the New Testament and his teachings? Very good question.
1: Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt, I- anyone that knows the New Testament, that this matter of who Jesus is, uh, is negotiable. He is clearly described in the Bible as Jewish. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, when they're given the genealogies, you'll find that his genealogy is traced to the, the line of Abraham and David, uh, proving that he has a Jewish pedigree. The other factor is that there are over 200 prophecies that were made about the Jewish Messiah that when he comes, you had to have certain credentials. All of those prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Christ, and that's how they knew that he was the, the one who would come. Um, they give you his ancestors. They tell you uh, the time even of his death and uh, the nature of his work and his ministry. It even talks about his preexistence existence in terms of eternality, and it deals with his death, his resurrection, even his ascension, and the fact that he would have an outreach to the Gentiles as well. Um, there are other factors that confirm that he's a Jew. For example, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 uh, said to him, how is it you speak to me being a Jew? Uh, clearly she is a Samaritan. She acknowledges him as a Jew. Pilate uh, in John chapter 19 uh, has on the cross bore on the cross that he's Jesus, King of the Jews. So even Pilate, the Roman um, governor, acknowledged that Christ was a Jew. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says that he is the seed of David, tracing his his pedigree, a portion that the Messiah who has come is uh, um, actually fulfilled the Bible prophecy that he is going to be a Jew in the line of David. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 7 talks about him being in the line of Judah. So however you look at it, there's no uh, way that you can escape the fact that the Bible Emphasizes, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that Jesus, the Messiah, is of Jewish stock. He was a Jew. Now the next question is, um, how then, if he's a Jew, uh, that he was rejected and the Jews rejected the New Testament? Well, the Bible also gives you an explanation for that. Um, I'll just share some facts with you. Uh, you must remember that the Jews had a false messianic expectation. Their concept of the Messiah, that he would be a conquering person who would deal with the occupiers the Romans who were in Palestine and uh, conquer them and reestablish Jewish monarchical rule under the Messiah. That was their vision of what the Messiah was going to be. We know that the Messiah is going to fulfill that prophecy when he comes a second time. But they didn't understand there were two phases to his coming. He would come first and die for the sins of the world because he'd be rejected. And then he comes back in his glory uh, to reestablish his kingdom on planet Earth for, ten th- for a thousand years. So part of the reason they rejected the New Testament and rejected Christ has to do with the false expectations that they entertained. Uh, that there are prophecies in the Bible that deals with the Lord's kingdom and his kingship, but they also prophecies that deal with the fact that he'll be a suffering servant, and uh, they just seem to have lost it, not understanding the full role that he would play, and there'll be two aspects to his coming. The other thing we got to remember is the nationalistic pride of the Jews. For a Messiah to die, as Christ did on the cross, defeated, weak, uh, it was a death of ignominy and shame. Uh, Jewish pride would never entertain the idea that their Messiah would die as a common criminal on the Roman cross. So Jewish pride played a role in that. And then don't forget also religious bigotry. Uh, the Christian faith and the death of Christ and his work on the cross was seen as displacing Judaism and the law of Moses. And if you read the book of Acts and the Gospels, you'll find that again and again, our Lord had confrontations with these religious leaders because they were holding to certain traditions. Our Lord exposed their religious corruption, he condemned the hypocrisy of them, and also he corrected them about the legalistic teachings that they had. In addition to that, he uh, pointed out that they were actually violating and distorting the law through their traditions. And uh, we're told later in the Gospels that they envied him because crucified because they envied because he became more popular. Men came to see him and to hear him. no man spoke like this man. So he garnered all the attention of the, mo- of the uh, populace, and this in itself uh, created jealousy and envy and led to his betrayal. And then there's another reason that we find in the Bible that's found in the book of Romans. Paul explains it very clearly, Romans nine10 and 11 uh, about Israel's judicial blindness. Because they rejected the Messiah who came and rejected Him, we are told that God has blinded them, judicially blinded, as the judge of the universe, as the moral uh, person in in, in respect to the moral order. He has cast a a blindness over their eyes so that they are not able to see the Messiah as He is. So as a nation, the nation is blinded judicially. But individual Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the biblical reasons why they have um, rejected the Messiah. And um, even today, uh, they think that Jesus Christ was a deceiver, that they don't put trust in Him as a nation. But there are many, many Jews who've come to faith in Christ, uh, and they've got a movement among the Jewish population that have led many to, to the Lord.
0: Thank you for the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, here's another question. A gentleman who is a professing believer of Christ refuses to say that he is a Christian. He believes all who do are incorrect because he believes we should call ourselves saints rather than Christians because in Paul's writings he referred to them as saints rather than Christians. What is your take on this premise?
1: I think there's a storm in a teapot <laughs> and, and I also think you know Lord lot people who um, strain at a nut and swallow a camel I think this is some kind of a situation like that. Look there's several words in the Bible that are used to describe uh, Christians and I would just list several of them. Number one the word saint. There's no question about that. You can't read Paul's writings without seeing that the, the word saints is applied to Christians. Then there's the word brethren uh, that is used several times in the scriptures. There's the word beloved. is used in Philemon and Romans chapter 1, verse 7 as to describe the Christian. In Colossians, the Christians are called faithful. And then they're also called the church. Now, if you really want a word that really is used more for describing a Christian than any other, it might shock you at the word brethren. The word brethren is used 127 times, 96 times in Paul's writing alone to describe believers. On the other hand, saint is only used 46 times in the New Testament. So if you want a word that predominates in terms of describing Christians, it would be word brethren. So if you want to make a point, brethren is much stronger than the word saint because it's used twice as many, as many times as, as the word saint is used. Now we find that in the scriptures, it is the word Christian is used three times. It's used in Acts 11.26 at uh, Antioch, Antioch in Syria, where the believers were first called Christians. This is after Paul was brought by Barnabas down to that area to minister. And apparently Paul did such an effective job that we're told that the believers were co- first called Christians there. And the word Christian means uh, Christ-like. It means being like Christ. So it was an identity. It's like um you might call somebody uh, uh, um, if i had a following davidic followers or something of that nature but that's what the word christian means it means that you are the persons are identified with christ who it came the other time we find the word um christian is in acts chapter 26 is where agrippa said paul almost thou persuadest me to be a christian so clearly the word uh, agrippa the king uh, certainly knew that they were christians in the in the in the, in the realm and he thought when paul was preaching to him that Paul was trying to turn him into a Christian. So, clearly, that term was very, very common as a description of believers. And then, First uh, Peter chapter four verse sixteen, Peter said, "If any man suffer as a Christian," uh, that term is applied to believers again. So, I think basically that um, I think it's making too much about nothing. I think it's minoring, majoring in the minor and minoring the major. I would say to the person um, that if you're talking to this individual, um, number one, show them that the premise is wrong. Take a concordance and go through the Bible with them and see the frequency of the word saints. And then maybe look at the frequency of the word brethren in the New Testament, and you'll see that you can show him almost three times the word brethren is used to the Christian as opposed to the saints. The other thing I would say to you is that um, go the mature route with this person he might be a person who has perhaps um, been listening to certain radio programs or maybe reading certain books and you've got all kind of wackos out there who are trying to make something distinguish and uh, focus on something and make it unique when in truth, truth in fact there's no real study on the matter uh, but don't allow it to lead to any kind of infighting and any kind of uh, ill will uh, pray for the brethren and hope that he matures in the christian faith he'll adopt a different attitude
0: you're listening to That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It happens every Tuesday evening from 7.30 until 9.00 p.m. here in the Eastern Caribbean. You can listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org. If you just tuned in and maybe uh, you want to catch what happened earlier in the episode— You can listen to a rebroadcast on Saturday afternoons from 3.30 until 5, or you can go uh, later this week and listen to the podcast online, and I will explain later in the episode how to find that podcast. Pastor, a question that has come in, is money in heaven and did money come from God?
1: Well for sure money is not in heaven there's no there's no trading in heaven there's no uh need for any payments or have to pay for goods and services all services up there are free so there's no need there's no money there look money is just a medium of exchange um within a particular country or economic system um it basically is to facilitate trade and and commerce um If you do uh, any research on the matter, you'll find that the first usage of the term money was during the, um, in in Mesopotamia, around uh, 3000 BC. That's the first reference to any kind of money. Um, When it comes to minting money, in terms of, you know, creating coins, etc., according to Herodotus, uh, the first mints um, were dated from 650 BC to 600 BC, uh, where the elites of Ionia and Lydia used stamped silver and gold coins to pay for the armies. That's when you first had the minting of coins. In America and in Asia and in Africa and Australia, the first set of money was shells, uh, the exchange of shells. I, I think I've mentioned on this program <coughs> some of the time that even during the Second World War, when the German money had become so inflated and so useless that Actually, people were trading in cigarettes, so the money had no value. Uh, cigarettes had more values, and that's how they traded during the Second World War, after the collapse of the uh, the German regime. So really, it, it's whatever is acceptable as a means of, of exchange, whether in commerce and, 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 um, and, and, and trade. So there's no money in heaven. <laughs> it didn't come from heaven either. It's, it's a human invention to facilitate trade and commerce. A text
0: message, can you please explain fate?
1: Fate, now it depends on how you interpret that word, uh, but generally speaking, the idea of fate is that what happens to a person is outside his control and and somewhat predetermined by chance. Um, It's interesting that when you uh, look at the the Greek and um, Roman mythology, that they had three goddesses that were supposed to control the destiny of man. Uh, There was the goddess called Clotho, uh, who spinned out the thread for human life that determined uh, human life. And then there was uh, the goddess called uh, Lachesis, who was the one that determined the length of the thread. And then there was one called Atrophos who is the one that cut the thread of life. So these are the three faiths that are supposed to control the the destiny of the Romans and the Greeks. From a Christian perspective, there are two doctrines that must always be kept in balance. That is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is sovereign and God's will will be done. What God has purposed will come to pass. Nobody can stop God's purpose from being accomplished. But God and His sovereignty have decided to deal with man as a moral being to, act, to deal with man as a moral being, it means that man must have a choice. And that's where God has given man to make choices. So a man's destiny is not determined, predetermined that he can't do anything about it. His choice and his decision determines his destiny. So we do believe that um, um, there, instead of talking about fate and you can't help yourself and everything is predetermined, uh, biblically, uh, the Bible is very, very clear that you have a, a choice, and your choices and decisions determine your destiny. But that's what fates are. It's just that believing that everything is determined, you, you can't change anything. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we make choices, we make decisions, and those choices and decisions determine our destiny.
0: question that's come in from St. Kitts. What does the word spoil mean in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26, and that verse says, And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Okay, I think
1: if you look in the same chapter, chapter 30, you'll find that the word is also mentioned in verse 16, verse 19, verse 22, and verse uh, 26. Uh, the word, if you check it in the Strong's Concordance, it is seven nine nine eight, and the word has to do with the booty or the plunder that is seized in a war. It's like I'm going to, I'm going to fight another nation. I'm going to fight uh, um, another group and um, in the process of the war, I am victorious. So I now claim all that that person had, whatever they had there, whether the gold, the silver, whether it's the foodstuff, whether it's the clothing, uh, whatever is there of value, that becomes the, the, the spoils or the bounty. And that's why in First Samuel chapter 36, it's referring to uh, David giving a gift uh, after he had conquered the people who had attacked Ziglag And now he had overcome them, he takes these spoil or these gifts of this bounty of what he has plundered, these items of goods he would seized, and now he's he's giving some uh, away.
0: Pastor, when David's baby died, he said, I will go to him, but he won't come to me. Can you please explain what that means? And thank you to the individual who sent in that question.
1: Well, I think if you look at that's what verse again?
0: Uh, they don't give a reference.
1: Let's find it look at 1 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12.
0: 2 Samuel 12. All yeah. right. And read
1: from verse number 15.
0: All right. Starting at verse number 15, it says, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth but he would not neither did he eat bread with them you're going to verse 23 stop at verse 23 and it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died and the servants of david feared to tell him that the child was dead for they said behold while the child was yet alive we spake unto him and he would not hearken unto our voice how will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? And verse 19 says, But when David saw that his servant whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he re- and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? verse 23, but now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me.
1: I think verse 23 is the key to this whole thing because it is almost self-explanatory. David is saying, I can't bring a child back from his dead. But David said, I can go for him. In other words, David, when he dies, will go to be with his son. Uh, da, da, da. Remember this son is a product of the illicit relation Between David and Bathsheba And um, the Lord judged David because of the sin David had not only committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba He would actually murdered her husband to cover up his uh, his sin and, and God dealt with David in severity But David was fasting and praying Hoping that God would spare the child's life And that's why the, his, his, uh, his, uh, people are very... Puzzled that um, he's fasting and praying When the child is still alive And then when the child dies He's he's having a celebration It seemed to them a celebration It seemed quite the reverse But the thing is that David was uh, fasting and praying Because he was hoping that by that means God would intervene and God would be merciful But when he realized that uh, God had made up his mind that the child would die It was no use now moaning and groaning So that's why he gets him and washes himself But then he says you know I, I can't bring this child back but I can go to that child. By the way, this is one of the verses in the Bible that is normally used to explain that when children, children uh, die before the age of accountability, that they go in where the righteous goes. So this is one of the great verses in the Bible that are often used because David is a righteous man. And when David said, I'll go to him, it means David in his death will go to the same place this child is. And it would seem from this passage to indicate that uh, if David is a righteous man is going uh, to the righteous place, that this child has actually gone there. So that's what it really means uh, in the passage. It means that uh, the child cannot be brought back from death, but David in his death will go to the same place the child was, the place where the righteous are.
0: This next question has gotten me intrigued, and I'm looking forward to hearing how you answered from Scripture. When Jesus died on the cross, the sun did not shine for hours. Since the earth orbits around the sun to determine the time of day, did time cease?
1: Well, uh, if you look at the passage, uh, there are three passages in the Bible that indicates that there was a three-hour time of darkness uh, on, on earth, and it went from uh, 12 noon until uh, 3 p.m. The Bible says the sixth hour to the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon for the Jew, and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. Um, you find that in Matthew 27, verse 45, Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Now, there are three options number one, was this a solar eclipse? And number two, was it a lunar eclipse? Or three, was it a supernatural event? And we could try to decide that based on certain factors. First of all, uh, what is a lunar eclipse? Um, when you when you are dealing with a, a solar eclipse, let's deal with a solar eclipse first. When we talk about a solar eclipse, what are we dealing with? When we are dealing with a solar eclipse, a solar eclipse is when the moon casts its shadow on the Earth because uh, it comes between the Earth and and the and the and the sun. Um, uh, for there to be a solar eclipse, it has to be a new moon during the moon noon uh, for a solar eclipse. Now that is important uh, because when you study the passage uh, in, the, in, the, in the book of um, Matthew or Luke or Mark, you'll find that it was the time of the Passover, which was the full moon. Okay. So that puts out the solar eclipse immediately, so there could not have been a solar eclipse. And not only that, notice that uh, because of that, uh, it's not possible that that could have happened. So what about a lunar eclipse? Uh, a lunar eclipse is when the Earth uh, is between the sun and the moon, and there's casting of the shadow across the moon. Um, during a lunar eclipse, the moon phase is always a full moon. Uh, so that asks the question now, uh, could it have happened during... But again, what hour did it take place between 12 noon and what? 3 p.m. So it could not be a lunar eclipse as well. So it could not be a, a solar eclipse, nor could it be a lunar eclipse. There's only one answer that is left here, by the way. And that is that it had to be a supernatural act on God's part. Um, Jesus was crucified uh, at 3, at 9 a.m., the third hour. Uh, when he was crucified, and he was hung on the cross for three hours. Uh, we know that during that period of time, as soon as he was there, the Lord allowed to have three hours of darkness as well. As though the Lord allowed three hours for him to be hanging on the cross where people could see him, and then this three hours of obscurity. In those three hours of obscurity, our Lord made three of the seven saints on the cross. He said, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And he said, Father, into my hand I commit thy spirit and it is finished. It seems as though uh, God in his mercy and his grace uh, would not expose uh, his son to the glaring um, sight of humanity. Three hours he's there on the cross and then three hours in darkness. So, my answer to that question is it has to be a supernatural event that occurred uh, when this thing uh, happened. And by the way, this is not the first time that darkness uh, like this has happened. You remember during the the Exodus with the Ten Plagues, uh, where the Egypt was darkened, but where the Israelites were in Goshen, there was light. So clearly there's a supernatural event that occurred there. Look, we've got to remember that we can't remove the supernatural from Scriptures. The thing about our Lord's redemption, everything about His redemption is that it was a miraculous supernatural event. And uh, I think that this is one of the tokens that uh, the Lord was trying to, uh, trying to show that uh, this was an incredible miracle that took place when He died, and therefore God supernaturally intervened and in a way displayed um, the uniqueness of this. I w- want to add to this that this actual did occur. There is outside evidence besides Scripture that authenticates uh, this uh, both by historians and those who are chronologists. For example, Fledgian uh, uh, referred to this by Eusebius, the historian referred to Fledgian as referring to this three hour of darkness. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, when he's appealing for the uh, veracity of christianity appeals to the roman archives that recorded this uh this event of darkness and then uh sidus uh asserts that dionysius the eropagite uh, while he was in egypt when the could occurred that he testified that there was this three hours of darkness so i don't think we ought to be embarrassed about something as a matter of fact Um, I take a different view. I I feel that because it is such a supernatural event, it's what makes Christianity so unique. So not only is his his, his birth unique, not only is his death unique, uh, but even his resurrection is unique. And even in this time of darkness, was something quite unusual that the the world took note of that occurred at this point in time. A religion without miracles... It's a fraudulent religion, and that's what gives Christianity the edge against all others. It's a supernatural event, and I think those three hours of darkness during that time of the crucifixion was just another mark of the supernatural invention of God authenticating the death of Christ and what he did for us on the cross.
0: As you were talking about the supernatural, I was thinking of the account in Moses, where Moses, when he held up his hands, they won the battle. As soon as his hands went down, the battle stopped, and the day was... uh, it's held,
1: held in check, yeah uh, yes, again, the reason why Christians have problems with this is because we 've allowed scientists to push us um, to deny anything supernatural, so we 're trying to find a a natural explanation because the the majority of uh, scientists that are not Christians they believe in what is called uni, 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 <laughs> trying to pronounce the word.
0: Uniformity? Um, yeah, it is. Uniformity?
1: Yeah, no, it's unit, uniformatism, uh, something of that effect. Anyhow, it has to do with the fact that uh, God made laws and rules and regulations, and those laws and rules and regulations operate uh, whatever happens today. So anything that seemed like, take take the flood, uh, they they argue that it could not have taken a place bec- uh, because of the, the um, what took place in the Grand Canyon, for example had to be t- had to take place gradually according to the normal things that we have today so they don't understand that the flood could have come and created that and that's how they do the dating. they take the normal uh, uh, erosion that takes place today and make it the standard to judge the past. but uh, we don't have to apologize about the, the, uh, the darkness and all these scientific facts we just got to understand that we'd serve a supernatural God and this was certainly a supernatural event that occurred.
0: A question from a listener in regards to a couple of words you might find in the Bible. What is a declaration and what is a decree?
1: Well, the word the declaration and decree, those are terms that are normally used within the Word of Faith movement. And they are found within charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles. Um, to declare is to state aloud a fact, and uh, to decree is to issue an authoritative command for example, let me quote uh, Kenneth Copeland, the leader, one of the leaders of the Word of Faith movement. He said, you can have whatever you say, you always get in your life what you believe for and what you say. So when we talk about declaring, uh, this is a term that where uh, people are said to say, I declare that my family is healed, or I declare that I am Going to receive a vehicle I declare that I'm going to get the three-story house that is what it is mean and decreeing mean that I authoritatively claim that it is mine so the terms are are not synonymous but one is more a declarative statement one is more an authoritative statement but it normally is a term that is used in connection with the word of faith movement and uh, the reason why they say that Christians can make decrees and make declarations is because they said that Christians uh, believe people are made in the image of God. If we're made in the image of God, uh, quite frankly, the same way that God operated, God was able to declare and decree, let there be. Uh, a Christian who has that kind of faith should be able to do exactly what God did because we're made in the image of God. What it's doing, basically, is deifying man. Uh, and that is what is happening in the word of faith movement. So the same authority, the way that God called things into existence by his word, because to, with these people, words have power. And uh, if you have faith, faith gives power to words. So you can declare anything you want, and you can claim anything you want. You can decree that this is yours, and it is yours. So it's really the word of faith movement that uh, these two words are are being used uh, in Scripture. Let me put it another way. Declaring and decreeing has replaced prayer. Normally, the believer prays and asks God for things now in this new movement you don't need the prayer you can declare it and you can decree that it's yours that it is yours it's the greatest mockery of god that you can find in modern terms but it's so popular uh with so many different groups today but it's a denial of the efficacy of prayer and it's giving man the powers that belong to god it is actually defying man and in a sense it's becoming a form of idolatry to make man literally a god that can make things and claim things that he wants and decree things that he wants
0: I'm still puzzled as to how that movement keeps going, Pastor, because not that I've attempted to decree a new vehicle, but <laughs> but it, that's just not how, how life works. And you look at Scripture, that's not how, how God, uh, you don't see God, Jesus teaching us to decree, you see him teaching us to pray.
1: That's exactly right. But I think the the, the movement basically is a New Age uh, philosophy, and the whole idea has to do with, uh, and behind the whole New Age uh, uh, philosophy is that man has lost his identity. He has to regain his identity, and it's only by coming to a higher level of consciousness he would really realize that he's God. And that's the whole concept behind the New Age movement. That has filtered into the church. And uh, now the people are being told that being made in the image of God means more than it used to mean. It used to mean that you made the image of God that you're tripart tripartite, God is a tri- tr- uh, trinity. It used to mean that man has a, a, um, will, persona- has a will, emotions, and um, uh, personality, basically. That's what it used to mean. Uh, But now it means something else, Uh, and uh, he's now given so much power. Um, It is just one of those uh, doctrines that the Bible warns against in the end time, that you've got doctrines of demons, because this certainly is contrary to Scripture. If it's contrary to Scripture, it goes outside the realm of, of, of God's truth, and that creates error
0: you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, the name of the program is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.04. Pastor, a question says, good night to the program. If the Sabbath is Saturday, why is there a change to worship on Sunday, and what should a Christian be doing on Saturday?
1: I think we've answered that question before in another program, but let me just briefly make a few comments in regards to this matter. Uh, Sunday has not changed. Uh, In other words, Saturday will always be Saturday, Sunday will always be Sunday. Uh, The Church observes uh, Sunday uh, to celebrate the new creation and to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, The Church has the example in the Bible that our Lord was resurrected on the first day of the week. The church was founded on the first day of the week, the day of Pentecost. Uh, if you read uh, Paul's meeting with be- the believers at um from Ephesus, He met with them on the first day of the week when Paul um, preached until midnight, etc., etc. Um, in the book of Corinthians, Paul tells the believers, when you come together on the first day of the week, lay aside your tithes. So very, very, very clear. The New Testament believers uh, take those biblical passages, passages as a basis for uh, observing the uh, s- Sunday as the Lord's Day. The other factor is, in the book of Revelations, uh, it is called the Lord's Day, and that word that is used, the Lord's Day, is called Lordian Day in the Greek language. It's the same word that's translated the word, uh, the Lord's Supper. It's not the day of the Lord, it's a completely different translation, so it's believed that that particular Lord's Day is referring to being on the first day of the week, being on Sunday. That's the basis on which uh, the church observes the the, the Sunday. Um, they believe that the Sabbath belonged to the old creation and it belongs to the under the old economy of law. We know under the new economy of grace, there's a new covenant that's been made. And if you read this book of Psalms, when the Lord was resurrected, it said, "This is the day that the Lord have made. Uh, and this day have I begotten thee." The church interprets that to mean that the day the Lord was um, received the. In resurrection, that that day ought to be celebrated, and then there's so many examples. If we had a chance to go through it again, uh, where you go back to the first century, uh, for the first century right through to see that when the church met, we've got the testimony of, of many church fathers that they met on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, Sunday. Uh, that is where uh, the reason why uh, the church observes the, the the Sunday, just like the Sabbath celebrates the physical creation and the old creation the first of the week celebrates the new creation which is the new man in christ jesus and which celebrates the church now as far as what christians should do on on saturday i think that depends on um, christian liberty we are no longer under the constraint of the legalistic system of the law Uh, a christian can witness on sunday and a christian can do other things that needs to be done on sunday Uh, I do believe that the Christians should not abuse Sunday, Uh, however. uh, I think that it should be a day of worship and rest. I don't think there should be any um, godless activities on on Sunday because I think it it dishonors our Lord's resurrection. But in terms of the Sabbath, uh, we are no longer under the bondage of the law, and um, Christian liberty ought to be exercised in that regard.
0: And if you are interested in listening to a full episode on the topic of the Sabbath, you can go to Google, type in that's Truth Podcast, and choose your preferred provider. It could be Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and then look for episode number four, and it's entitled Sabbath. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please.
1: Good evening, good evening. Hey, good evening, sir. Good evening. Good hearing you again. I'm good. How are you doing?
2: Not too bad, not too bad.
1: Yes, how can I help you, sir?
2: Yeah, I have a couple questions now to ask you, if you can help me.
1: Go right ahead. If okay, I can. Um,
2: can I, a can I Christian bless him in the name of God by praying, you know, can,
1: can we, praise, Did you I didn't hear, hear what you said. What? Repeat.
2: Can a Christian blaspheme in the name of God?
1: Uh-huh.
2: That's uh-huh. By, by worship, you know, praying, you know, or calling
1: his name often? Well, I think uh, I think we got to be very careful how we, we use the Lord's name. Uh, people use the Lord's name in vain. The Bible talks about warning against, against that. And I've heard people uh, something happened to them and they use uh, I don't want to use the word myself but they use the word Christ and they use the word God. Uh, I think that is using God's name frivolously and not giving proper respect to him. Uh, and then blasphemy of course is to show irreverence uh, to his name. So in, in that sense, um, it is possible for a person to use the word of God, use the Lord's name very laxistically, without any real meaning, and I think that that should be offensive because you, you don't, you know, you've got to honour his name, because honouring his name is honouring him, his name and his person cannot be separated. But, but, but not, very, not, very, um, not very likely is it to happen with a believer. But I think it is possible depending on, on the attitude that, and how one uses that name. I've heard uh, even Christians, i be honest with you, using Jesus' name almost like a curse word. Uh, I get offended. Like some people use a four-letter word. They would inject the name of Jesus when something has happened. I'm saying to myself, but that's, that's offensive to me. So I think Christians need to be much more careful and honor God's name as it should be and, and not use it indiscreetly and use it frivolously.
2: Because why I really ask that question? Because I fishing uh, a river brother and after if he is raining water an and he meets a fish, he have to call the name of borrow Jesus, or something, like a hand or something. But I didn't see my that blessings.
1: Yeah, yeah. I,
2: not everything that uh, happened really is something that a hindrance, something trying to. Yeah, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I've heard honestly. I've heard uh, I've heard a believer say something along that line when something happened. And I was so offended because I don't think they fully understand the significance of that name. You, you, don't, you know, you show respect. You wouldn't use your prime minister's name or somebody that you held in great dignity. You wouldn't use it so lackadaisically. So I think in order to sometimes you need to draw people's attention to that because they may not even be aware. It's a habit that they've developed. Uh, you might be able to call attention to, to what you're saying and say, do you realize what you just said? Uh, I think you might be able to help the person in that regard, without trying to be uh, make it too offensive.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, he, and if I talk to him, I tell him that he will find I like, I talk to this because he was he, he, he worshipping God and he's My he prayed me. I tell not I that him, and that is of anointing
0: me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, do your best, man, because sometimes, as I said, sometimes it's a habit. Some people do things and not even aware of the significance of it. And if they have been getting away with that around other believers or other Christians, uh, they just take it as the norm. But sometimes you need to draw the attention to the person of what is happening. And, uh, you know, tell them you must not use the Lord's name in vain. Um, I think you should try as best as you can without being um, belligerent or. Uh, being difficult, but I think if you would caution them, uh, say, you know, I'm with you, but I'm offended when you, when you use the Lord's name like that, you know, he's my Lord. Uh, try something, but uh, hopefully we can solve that problem.
2: Okay. And secondly, uh, do you have a new translation in the Bible? If you? Do I have what? A new translation.
1: A new translation? Yeah Do I have one with me? Or do I have
2: one at home? Do you mean? Oh, anywhere you have Oh yeah, I
1: have several translations I have the New American Standard I have the Amplified Version I have the NIV I have the King James I have Young's I have Alfred's I have another one I just can't call the name of it But I have several translations Why is that?
2: Because why? I read in First Corinthians chapter 14 Uh-huh and I've seen what Paul says about speaking in tongues and what we say about women, uh-huh. preaching and women, about be silent. And I've seen pastors ordaining their wives to be pastors, to be ministers. Yeah. And I find it is a different Bible. They, they really know the translation. Yeah. Translation is different.
1: No, I don't think translation is different. I think they take the passage and they. they what has happened today is that we are being socially conditioned by the world right that 's the problem the world worldly thinking and worldly has infiltrated the church. We want to be considered relevant, and the feminist movement uh, wants that everything a man does a woman should be able to do uh, and so what has happened is that in order to be seen as relevant and up to date, we are adopting that thinking, but nobody can go to the Bible and read the Bible, especially the book of Timothy, where Paul makes it very, very clear that no woman should ever be a pastor. Uh, the qualifications given in the Bible for pastor excludes a woman immediately. Uh, he must be a husband of one wife. There is no record of a woman being a pastor in any of the uh, uh look the first five or six hundred years of the church. This is a modern trend that is, is has taken place, and it is something that is unfortunate that uh, people are not guided with proper interpretation. they are guided more by the common the philosophy in the world and the social Revolution has taken place in the world where this feminist movement is 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 is, is gone, um, and actually gone into the church. But uh, I don't think there's no there's no difference in what you read there, and there's no no modern version changes what you read them. I'm fairly sure about that.
2: Because it, because I find it, I find if even talk to to them and tell them that it's wrong. Tell oh now with modern time, part the Bible yeah, I'm not that yeah, it's the Bible. Yeah, yeah the that, that, of God never that,
1: Yeah. There's, look, there are certain things you need to understand. There are certain universal principles in the Bible and you need to find out if the principle that Paul is talking about does it have universal application or is he dealing with a local situation. In every case where you read the, the, the situation where he says a woman should not uh, teach a man or have authority over a man and the pastor has to be able to teach he must have authority Paul grounds that in two things. He grounds that in the order of creation that God created man first, and that was not an accident God created man first. Paul makes it very clear. It was to establish headship. The second thing is that the fall, of the, the fall, the woman was deceived, and that has brought certain results where God has, those two reasons are given in the Bible as to why she should not have the authority nor she should not lead. Those does not change. You, you, you can't change the hierarchy how God created a human being, and you can't qu- reverse the fall. So those are the reasons that Paul gives for establishing uh, the headship of the man and the leadership of the man in in the church. So it's not a social uh, or cultural uh, norm that Paul is dealing with. He's dealing here with a universal. He goes on later in the same book, says that these are traditions that belong to the entire church. If any man don't accept these traditions, put that man out of the church. So Mm -hmm. these are things that are universally applicable. But what has happened is that, a lot of times churches start doing things that are unbiblical, they haven't studied it carefully, but they've been doing it for such a long now to reverse that, becomes an embarrassment. It's like a person who goes into a certain religion and then finally discovers that that religion is false. It takes tremendous courage to move away from a religion once you've discovered it is false because you've invested so much in it, uh, it it's, it's difficult, very, very difficult. So I, there's no difference in the in, in the translation. I can guarantee you that the difference comes is that we've allowed worldly thinking to infiltrate the church, and we're trying to become relevant by adapting to the world's social system, and the church will pay uh, greatly for that. When you start, that is why, by the way, when I may say this. That is why you'll read that some of the um, significant leaders today are accepting now homosexuality. It's almost becoming normalized in the church. Yeah. Right. That, that why do you think that is him? when you let you open the door and you let the enemy get to him with one foot, it's not long before the elephant takes up the whole room. And that's <laughs> what that that's what's happening to the church. It's very, very unfortunate that's happening mm-hmm. to the church. Uh all I can say to people when that begins to happen, you have to separate from brethren that go contrary to scripture. The Bible makes that very clear. Separate from the brethren that move away from Scripture. And find find the church that holds to Scripture. Because this final age and this closing generation, the key concept is deception. And the Bible warns that this is going to happen. There's going to be a falling away before our Lord's return. The church is moving away from truth. And you can see that moving away very, very, very fastly. And uh, we have to stick to biblical truth. We will be in the minority but uh, the church has always, the true church has always been the minority because the remnant, according to grace, has never been the popular group. Mm-hmm.
2: So just hold okay.
1: to biblical truth. Don't surrender biblical truth.
2: Okay. Uh, and the last one. Yes, sir. Uh, the, does uh, iniquity and sin, does iniquity carry greater weight than, than sin?
1: No, there are different words in the Bible for, for sin. Uh, for example, uh, the word sin normally means hea marty, which means to miss the mark. Um, uh, iniquity is normally associated in Scripture with something that is like occultic, demonic, etc., etc. But that's not the only use of the term. But uh, iniquity and sin are synonymous. But sometimes, they, depending on the context, uh, it carry Carry certain connotations have to do with some kind of the uh, occult system. Uh, so it depends on where it is found and what passage it is found in. But sometimes it's used synonymous. But not one. I mean, one is not greater than the other because all sin is sin. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is a gravity to some things that um, I mean. The Bible makes it very clear that uh, fornication, adultery are serious sins before God. Very serious mm-hmm. sins, not to be slighted. But. Um, their sin, like any other sin, is just that the repercussions of them, in terms of the lives of the people and the effect it has, is much more serious than a man who steals a, a tin of corned beef. He's sinning too, but it's not as grave as a person who commits adultery because it breaks up a marriage, breaks up a home, breaks up a family. Okay? okay? okay then
2: thanks for
1: God bless again. you, and thank you so much for calling.
2: Yeah, good
0: night. Good night, good night sir. Have a good night. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live call-in program the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.19. Pastor, one more question, and then we're going to return to the topic of demonology. Is it right for a pastor to get a divorce? Uh,
1: I don't think there's any biblical passage that these vis-a-vis with divorce with a pastor uh, it is very very clear that god hates divorce Um, and also the qualifications for pastor uh, they're very very strong in terms of his family life Uh, i would not by any standard recommend uh, a pastor a person who is divorced after he's been saved to fill the pulpit. I, I don't think that is right and proper. I think a pastor ought to be a model and an example to the church and it becomes very difficult for a person who's gone through a divorce if he's a Christian uh, to then be able to guide the church in that respect. There are certain things that disqualify certain people from certain functions because the, the biblical standard that is held up for a pastor in terms of the qualifications are very 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 high. Their character Qualities and they uh, have to do a, a lot more to deal with um, ethical and moral issues as opposed to intellectual issues. So, I, I, I in my judgment, I, I think it's improper uh, for that to happen. But I have known of uh, one or two cases that I, um, you know, I, 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 quite frankly, the the pastor was not at fault. I know one case where um, a pastor was in a church. I know the church. The church is up north. And his wife runs off and goes to the States and abandons him. What does the church do in a case like that? He did everything in his power. The church maintained him as a pastor. He's not remarried, but they felt that the wife was at fault. He had nothing to do with it. divorce. There was no adultery. There's no nothing at all. She just wanted to be in the States, got off to the States, and wanted to live up there, etc., etc. I know of another one in another island where a similar thing has happened. And the church um, continue with the person who is there. The person is not married, uh, uh, not has not gone remarried. But generally speaking, I think it is um, difficult for a person who has gone through a divorce uh, as a pastor to really be able to be the moral uh, exemplar uh, within the church. And um, I, I I don't endorse it personally.
0: Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please.
2: Good evening. Good evening, sir. Uh, Pastor, do you have any recorded information that Pilate was suspended by Rome for the poor handling of Jesus Christ?
1: I don't know any, I don't have that information. I can research it and see, but that's the first time I'm hearing that kind of a comment. I haven't heard that. I don't know where it has come from, but um, I certainly would investigate it and check it out and see if I have any if any historical basis for that. But that is novel to me. I have never heard that comment, um, but I, I, can, I can check it out and get back to you.
2: I would really love so because when somebody told me so,
1: uh-huh.
2: I... I I, I was surprised.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I <laughs> I was surprised so I said I must call in to you one evening and ask if you know anything about it.
1: No, I've never heard that, sir, and I, but I will check it out because I, I would be curious myself. You've just wet my appetite to find out if that's is any basis for that. So I will check it out and see if there's any historical information that would help. Um,
2: because they went on to tell me uh uh-huh. that um Rome said that if you say you find no
1: fault in this man, uh-huh.
2: you should not give in to the mob. Uh-huh. You should r- release him.
1: Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. I can't argue with that one. I just would like to investigate it. I, all I would say to you that Rome was a tyrannical country. The Jews were very, very, very explosive and very treacherous. And they were never a people to submit to external authority because they always felt they were God's special people. And that was part of the problem that Rome had with uh, Israel, that they were always a rebellious uh, nation, and they couldn't conquer the idea that they were conquered by Rome and under the iron fist of Rome. So that is why, by the way, in the, one, of the, one of the disciples is called a zealot, you know, Simon the Zealot. Yeah. Uh, you, you might consider him to be like a... Uh, um, uh, what you might call like the Al Qaeda, that kind of a person, a terrorist. Uh, oh. That's that's what that's what that's that's that kind of person he was before he got converted. What's called to the master, because the Jews were always fighting against oppression. They felt that Palestine belonged to them. The Romans had conquered and brought them into bondage, and there was always a problem. To, to insurrection was so common in in, in Israel, uh, until finally the Romans. The Romans um. Came in and burnt the temple and totally destroyed uh, the whole city and sent them into exile in seventy eighty. Titus did that, but they were never an easy people to to uh, to live under the dominion of another another power. Uh, very very proud people, and always uh, believed they're God's children and never felt they should be in bondage to anybody. So they're very difficult. So I wouldn't be surprised that um uh, you know. Uh, might find something that is might endorse what you're saying. I might find something that might not, might show, show the very opposite, because I know the, the Romans never like the Jews. They are always very difficult people to handle. But I will check it out, sir. Yes, sir. Thank and you And thank very you much. so much for calling. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. God okay. bless you. Thank
0: you. Have a great night. Keep listening and keep encouraging others to listen to that Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor Murphy, we're going to jump back to a topic that we haven't discussed for a few weeks now as we've been busy with listener questions, but the topic of demonology and continue our discussion on the work and activity of demons. When we were last discussing this, you were discussing that demons uh, promote false doctrine. Are there any other things that demons do?
1: Yeah, we, we were trying to come get a handle on this thing. What, what's the whole purpose of this uh demonic enterprise run by Satan, what he's trying to accomplish. and We we showed you very clearly that one of his main purposes is to promote uh, a system of false doctrine, and we we talked about that in some detail. The other thing when you check the Scriptures is that there's no doubt that they seek to destroy human beings by possessing their bodies and controlling them. Uh, That's why when you go into the Bible, you'll find that uh, there are many physical problems that were caused by demons, for example, dumbness and blindness. There are people that were, uh, had crooked limbs and had fit, suffered from paralysis and were tortured. Uh, then there were people who had mental derangement. The guy who was trying to kill himself and commit suicide. The guy that our Lord met in Garadines who was cutting himself, etc., etc., and nobody can control him. And then, of course, uh, the other thing about him is that they also got people involved in a lot of immorality. This is one of the reasons when our Lord was leading the Israelites into Canaan, he warned them do not practice these things, uh, and don't marry into into this group, because if you do this, it's going to lead you astray. And all the activities that are mentioned are restricted uh, moral activities in Leviticus chapter 18, Durant chapter 18. He said all of these things were being done by the Canaanites before you, and if you intermarry with them, you're going to end up committing the same kind of atrocious acts, and they're talking about the different moral issues. So... um, clearly uh, not only trying to promote false doctrine but trying to possess people and destroy uh, uh, human beings that is uh, a common feature you find in the new testament both in the gospels and in the book of acts the other thing that the other task that they assigned is the matter of trying to deceive nations and promote promote uh, the satanic plan um, in Revelation chapter twelve verse nine. If you could just read
0: that. Revelation twelve nine says the following: And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him.
1: Amazing. Uh, the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. Uh, the spirit no work of his children in disobedience. And now in Revelation chapter 16, the one that deceived not just part of the world, the whole world. He's engaged in uh, nations and political and governmental activities. Uh, you cannot explain certain things that are happening today within certain circles of government. Uh, you cannot explain it except there's some satanic movement uh, that is trying to engineer Uh, and change the system as it is. I mean, uh, if I might use an example, uh, I used it before, can you imagine in this enlightened age where everybody knows uh, the the child that is doing biology at school uh, knows that uh, human beings uh, begin at conception. That's a scientific fact. Cannot be disputed. Nobody can deny that. But then how do you explain that people who are doctors and lawyers and people who are highly qualified Especially in certain governments A, a child is not only uh, aborted out of the womb But a child is now allowed to be born out of the womb And then the doctor must discuss with the mother and the parent What to do with the child How did we ever come to this kind of barbarity? Uh, you cannot explain that simply in human terms There's an agent at work that has always seeking to destroy and to murder And there's a satanic movement that is involved in this whole governmental system to legalize abortion, even at a very late stage. It cannot be explained in any other terms. Man cannot become so brutal and so insensitive. You just take an innocent baby up in your arms, any one of you, and then explain to me how a mother or a politician could take a precious child in his arm and then decide that his life can be taken (laughs) I can't even conceive of the brutality of that. And I think that this is indicating that there is more than just um, uh, man has fallen. Behind fallen man are these agents that are being used in, in that. So I think uh, part of their job is to deceive the world and to deceive politicians and, de- and deceive governmental uh, people. Also look at Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 to 14 and verse 16 as well.
0: Chapter 16, verse 13 and 14 says, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of the devils, making, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And verse 16 says, And he gathered them together into a place. Called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, the seventh.
1: Yeah, this is yet future. This is the Battle of Armageddon. But notice who are used by the devil to uh, it's just these spirits. So clearly, that governmental authorities, um, they're human beings involved in governmental uh, in governance. But don't you ever think that they're not uh, evil spirits as agents trying to influence political decisions. Uh, you've got to understand, if you don't understand it, you'll never understand what's happening in the world of politics. It's more than just men making decisions, the agents at work trying to deceive uh, humankind in that regard. I think that's one of the program. I think we covered Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 and 20, where we have the, uh, the prince of uh, Persia and the prince of Greece. Uh, we did cover that, showing the involvement of demonic powers in dealing with nations. So that's another um, task that these demonic uh, powers are engaged in, uh, deceiving men and deceiving nations. And then the other thing that is involved is that they seek to frustrate the work of God. Uh, We see that in the Garden of Eden, where um, God's purpose is for humankind to develop a relationship with Him. God walks in the Garden of Eden. And certainly there is going to be a progressive growth of man in spirituality. And then the devil comes into the Garden of Eden and completely destroys everything that God started, turns paradise into hell, basically. You see that in the life of Israel as well. Uh, the attempts to uh, commit genocide to destroy the nation of Israel because the Messiah is coming through there. Behind that is certainly satanic power. We see it in the case of idolatry, where Israel goes into the, the Palestine and they get wrapped up with all kinds of idols, uh, moving them away from the throne of the living God. Behind idols, remember, are demonic powers. And then, of course, false prophets among Israel who said they're speaking for God, but yet speaking for the enemy. And then when you come to the, the church, you find that he tries to frustrate the work of God. Acts chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Peter said, How has Satan filled your heart? So, even in the church, you see the attempt to frustrate God's work. You see any persecution of the believers in the book of Acts. And then, of course, in one case, Simon Magnus, who made a profession, and then he tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, You have no lot in this matter. And then we come into Paul's life. Paul said, Satan hindered me. And then, of course, in 2nd. In, uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is given a thorn, a message of Satan uh, that it, uh, it, uh, hurts the apostle Paul. Today we can see the same thing, the false gospel, the prosperity gospel. How do you explain people being enamored with the gospel of prosperity and health when the Bible is so clearly uh, contrary to it? How do you explain that happening? This is the doctrine of demons. And then what about the proliferation of cults? So many groups, different groups claiming to be the remnant group. Uh, That God has raised up in the latter days to restore faith Uh, God has always had a remnant There's no need to raise up another group The remnant has always been there And then of course the apostate Christianity we're looking at today um, With people um, holding the most bizarre doctrines But yet consider themselves to be a church and then about, uh, then again, uh, the neo-paganism of our time, that we're you now reverting back to the old pagan customs because we've gone away from the Judeo-Christian principles and morals, and uh, our society is disintegrating. All of this is part of the frustrating of God's plan to redeem man and to bring about a new age called the millennium. Uh, all of this is satanic work. And then the other thing, Nathan, the fifth work is to try to possess man And uh, human soul and I think that is uh, when you read the Bible uh, clearly you've got all kinds of uh, situations where people who were possessed and demons seem to want to possess human bodies.
0: How can a person fall under demonic influence or how can you make sure you don't fall under demonic influence?
1: Well, several things. Uh, I think if you read Scripture, you can find verification of what I'm saying here. A person that lives a blatant life of sin and persistently resists God's Spirit and is unrepentant is open to demonic uh, influence and open uh, to demonic uh, control. We know this from the life of Saul. Uh, Saul repeatedly uh, was a self-willed, autonomous person that would not follow the dictates that God had given to him, until he keep rebelling and rebelling again, until the Lord allowed the Spirit to take possession of, Paul, uh, of Saul in the Old Testament. So um, a person who is persistent in, in resisting the Spirit of God and continues to live a very blatant ungodly life is open uh, to demonic influence. That is one way it can happen in the lifestyle of an individual.
0: Now, based on 1 John, wouldn't you be able to say that that person's not a believer? Which one? Uh, the fact that they're persistently refusing the spirit of God.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm referring to unsafe people. I'm not okay. here. When I'm, when I'm speaking here about who can be possessed, Okay, uh, a believer can be influenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about people, how people get demonized, and we're saying normally it has to do with a godless lifestyle. Um, um for example i am very convinced that people who are engaged in drugs i have no doubt in my mind that uh, i have visited the psychiatric hospital I've spoken to one or two of the nurses up there I've spoken to some of the young men in there And I have no doubt in my mind that uh, these people Some of them are demonized And the door has been opened to demonic control Because they've lost consciousness of their mind And opened that door Where evil spirits now begin to dictate. Some of these people you to hear voices I have no doubt about that So I think the lifestyle has a lot to do with it uh, As far as that person is concerned Uh there's no doubt as well that there are people who engage in certain activities like the voodoo priests that can definitely spells on other people who are not Christians. There's no doubt about that. People who live in Haiti and people who live in certain countries, like even, even St. Lucia, uh, I could tell you quite frankly, there are people that can do things to people. They can't do it to a believer because a believer is protected. But there's no doubt that people who are engaged with certain kind of occult practices can um, influence people who are, um, are, are unsaved. The third way I would say, Nathan, is when you engage in occult practices or experimentation, like visiting a fortune teller, um, um, or engage in some kind of spiritistic inquiry about the dead, necromancy, or uh, ch- uh, going to a charmer or a sorcerer, or uh, engage in some kind of superstition. Even the horoscope is an open door. Uh, to being influenced by, by, by demons. So I think the matter of experimentation and engaging in occult practices. The fourth thing that I would say is when your parents or grandparents have been involved in occult practices, this is very, very common. In most cases, when I've ever dealt with any case like that or found out anything about it, the first thing I normally try to find out is Is there anybody in your family that you know that does black magic or does uh, witchcraft or is involved in your cult in any way? In most cases, people who are demonized, there is some ancestral uh, trace that you can do. uh, People who are uh, engaged in it. and uh, So that is another thing that really helps to explain why this why this happens. So those are four things, basically. The lifestyle of an individual, I mentioned. Um, uh, People who are involved in certain forms of the occult who have the capacity to cast spells. Uh, the idea of family, um, in the family line, and of course, experimentation and, and engaging. Let me warn people about the Ouija board. Uh, that is a very dangerous instrument that is sometimes seen as a, a child's play, but it's very, very, very dangerous. Um, if you have one or you engage in it, you need to, to take it out of your house, get rid of it, burn it, destroy it, but it's not an innocent game. You are in being introduced to demonic powers
0: can a person accidentally become demonically influenced? I can't say
1: authentically that I know of any case like that. Um, I think most people who are become under the influence of demonic powers are people who are engaged in certain forms of activities that that um, that um, lead to that uh, but I can't think of i can think of people maybe using something that they're not aware of what it is, I can see that that has a demonic attachment. I can see a person come under the influence by engaging in certain things, that even though they don't know, and they're using certain things. Like, for example, it's possible to think that you're playing with a game with a Ouija board, yeah. and then you can find that you can be demonically influenced. That has actually happened in Barbados, at a school in Barbados, uh, actually happened where kids were playing with it, and then one of them became demonized. So that, that has happened.
0: Is it possible to list some characteristics of actual demonic oppression or subjection
1: uh there are several things that I would uh draw to the attention of those people um if you have a query about it and find out you know am i am I demonized or do I know somebody uh, you know some people say oh, this person got a demon let me make some uh suggestions um in that regard uh Basically, the person who is demonized, um, they persistently would reject anything to do with God, and they are, have a very unrepentant attitude. Again, King Saul is an example of this. Uh, no matter how the Spirit tried to bring King Saul back to his senses, he kept repeating the same thing again and again. He, when David's spirit is like he, he, he praised David and said, "You are know, more, more righteous than I." And then. Uh, the moment situation, says he goes back to the same thing. Uh, So I think when your person is persistently resisting the spirit, uh, that is one of the the proofs. Um, The other thing is um, demons try to control a person's thoughts and their feelings. It has to do with their psychical life. Uh, When you find a person who only has evil thoughts of God, Uh, Just Has very nasty Thoughts of God Nothing positive about God Or has a very belligerent attitude Towards God's word Um, Those may be indications That a person is under uh, Demonic influences Uh, If a person finds himself That all he can do Is entertain evil thoughts uh, No matter what he thinks He thinks all he can think about Is impurity And he has no remorse uh, For his sin Um, That is an indication again And then the idea of that terrible fear Uh, A person lives a life As though there's somebody Constantly over them Or watching them Uh, That if you have those kind of feelings Chances are that you can be uh, Under the influence of of, of demons And then um, When you seem to have no will Any longer To resist uh, And no matter what you do You find that you can't um, You don't want to do what you're doing But you're constantly pushing that direction I'm not saying you're demon-possessed But you can be uh, demonized Because you have lost the control of your will And the Bible talks about The the devil capturing people at will Uh, Very frequently as well um, That person doesn't have the ability To use the name of Jesus Uh, They can't use that name And if they do, they cannot use it except they do it by some kind of a distorted face or, to say, it in a mechanical way. But they cannot um, voice it with any kind of credence. Uh, that becomes very clear. And then uh, the other thing is, as well, is that when you try to talk about the need help in this area of deliverance, they are very, very offended and they don't want to discuss these kind of matters uh, uh, to get spiritual help. That's another uh, sign. And then sometimes they have mediumistic ability. And what I mean by that, sometimes they they know things that uh, and they can say things about people that you know that they've got this information not from the individual themselves. As a matter of fact, when you're trying to deal with people like this, sometimes they might even tell you your sins. Uh, uh, so how did they get that, that Private knowledge This is an indication That they're under The, the influence of um, uh, of demons And then uh, the other thing Is that um, Sometimes they don't like Spiritual advice uh, They feel oppressed When you begin to give them Spiritual advice And uh, they rather Run away from the advice And try to seek the counsel And if you ever try to pray With them It's very 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 difficult For them to pray as well uh, they they have a, a repulse uh, against prayer and when they do want to pray they're either very, very tired or they can't concentrate uh, to pray. That's another sign that they're under demonic um, some kind of demonic oppression. The other thing I would say is um, they can't seem to understand Scripture. They uh, Or sometimes when you read Scripture to them or say Scripture they either pass out or somehow they just seem to lose some kind of interest in that. And the other thing um is that their reaction to a Christian who is uh want to help them there's a distrust that they have of the counselor and and they refuse at point blank uh, to talk to the person anymore, they just kind of clam up when you begin to touch on that very sensitive area. I think those are some of the the, the pertinent uh, indications that a person is actually under some kind of demonic uh, influence. The other thing is, Nathan, that normally the person's life will begin to deteriorate. Uh, they don't improve; it gets worse and it gets worse. I think that's a sure indication. And sometimes they can even blank out or go to what you might call a trance. Uh, these are indications that there's some demonic activity going. I mean, it, it, it can get worse than that. I mean, you can end up where people are screaming, uh, raving, uh, sometimes they grind their teeth, and sometimes they can become even violent. Yeah. All of these are indications that there are some demonic activity going on in the
0: Jewish Or in losing Seppers. control of bodily functions. Correct. Well, I've heard of an account also of an individual who wouldn't have necessarily been well-versed in Scripture. But when being dealt with, uh, when there was concern about whether they were being oppressed or possessed, Uh uh, where they suddenly uh, became very knowledgeable and even were able to quote verses that they wouldn't have necessarily been able to quote before, Mm -hmm. even to the point of trying to correct uh, pastors who had studied God's word for a long period of time, Uh, and so the... Preface. There was that, or the assumption there was that Satan, uh, not necessarily Satan, but his demonic forces, they are aware of Scripture and they know what Scripture says, and they will use that and try and twist it.
1: Um. Makes sense because you remember in, uh, in Matthew chapter four, the devil quoted Scripture again yeah. and again to Christ. So yeah. it's it's not it's not um, outside that possibility. Um, that these people have a a gift as far as that. You remember also in Acts where the young lady was saying, uh, when Paul was going around evangelizing, listen to these men, these men bring the word of the most high God. Yeah. And uh Paul listened for one and then Paul uh realized that this is this is this is demonic. I mean and Paul told the spirit, Come out of her in the name of Jesus. You remember the story, right? Yeah. So clearly they have this this capacity to, to quote scripture another thing nathan that um looking at the notes here um it's also indicated sometimes they have suicidal thoughts and actually murderous thoughts they would like to attack the person that is actually trying to help them so that's a fascinating statement in itself but those who deal with them extensively say that that is one of the thoughts that are very much often there try to do injury uh to an individual
0: is there, now you were talking about subjection or oppression, are there particular marks that one should watch for or be alert for that are signs of possession?
1: I think the, the if you're going to mark um, and look, you'll find that there are a lot of characteristics, especially when our Lord met with the the, uh, the guy in the Garridines. Uh There are a lot of signs that are clearly there that would indicate when a person is actually uh, possess. Just like to highlight uh, a few of those at this point in time. Um, first of all, uh, persons that seem to have unusual strength. You remember in the case of the Garadins, the guy could break chains. Um, Any time you have dealing with this kind of demonic thing, the person displays, uh, in some cases, unusual strength. I was reading a an account where a guy said that. Um, the, the held on this this, this girl and, and she was able to almost take seven men, just lift them up, throw them off. This is an amazing statement to make, but that gives you the unusual strength that these people could have. Uh, the other thing is that they also seem to have uh, ambivalence uh, towards the things of God. Remember, the, the guy runs to Jesus and then he said, don't torment me. Yeah, I mean, he, he wants help, but yet he's resisting. So there's this ambivalent spirit that you'll find uh, within a person who is demon-possessed. And then, of course, there is this resistance that is there uh, that you'll find uh, against. And then there's what you call clairvoyance. When this person met Jesus, never met Jesus, but he, he, he was able to say, thou Jesus, son of David. So he had that particular knowledge. And then the other thing is that sometimes the voices that I went in a purse is clearly not the individual voice. This guy was called legion because he had so many demonic powers. And when you're dealing with people who are demonized, normally they they, they you can you can recognize that there's a, when the person speaking it's not the person normal voice. There's another voice that is there. So you've got intent the other thing is um some of these people have the capacity to speak in tongues, speak in another language that they've never learned So that's the danger of associating speaking in tongues with of the Spirit of God Because uh, when you read that the uh, witch doctors are able to make people speak in tongues uh, The Mormons are able to, to speak in tongues And, and other, uh, even the the, uh, the American Indians, when they're going through their process, they're able to speak in tongues so, the resistance, the clairvoyance, the ability of the person to speak with another person's voice, um, the visible conflict of amb- amb- uh, ambivalence between the person that want healing but yet they don't want healing, the unusual strength that the person displays, and then uh, another thing that indicates when there is really, really uh, de- is a, a sudden deliverance, uh, the person is completely transformed when deliverance takes place and you recognize that this was not the ordinary person that is there. The other thing about them is the moment of transference that the demons that leave the individual always seek to find another habitation. In the case of the Garazines, uh, you find that he said to the Lord, uh, the Lord said, go and he ran right into the pigs. They seem to want to be embodied somehow. Uh, And that is another mark of... of, uh, Uh, demon possession.
0: You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua. Pastor, as you've been talking through these uh, points on demonology and uh, summarizing those teachings, we have a couple of questions that have come in. A uh, WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening. My question tonight is where are women generally considered to... Why are women generally Considered to be insecure when they have valid questions to issues going on in the home. And these lies of men or husbands are often misused, misled, under the guise that he's driven by ego. I notice this a lot in Christian marriages.
1: We re, re, uh, rephrase that again. Let me hear it again. Yeah,
0: why are women generally considered to be insecure when they have valid questions to issues that are going on in the home, uh-huh. and the lies of men or husbands are often? I'm not sure what the word is, uh, because he's driven by ego. I notice that a lot in Christian marriages. Well, I'm
1: not too sure why um, men would view women as insecure because they ask valid questions. I. I am not aware that um, that has never happened, to my knowledge, in my case. I think when a wife asks a question, I think she's a reason there. I don't think it's a matter of insecurity. Um, I think with most men, men are not communicators. I think that's the biggest problem within marriage. Men are just not talkers. Women love to talk; they like to communicate, and I think that the, the male weakness is that he's not a verbal communicator. Very few men are good at communicating; they're very good at communicating when they're dating, but after they get married, and rings on the finger, there's a different different mode altogether. But I I don't view women as insecure who ask valid questions. I think a husband who views his wife that way and think that she's asking questions because she's uh, insecure, um, I think he needs to have his head checked. And I think he ought to pay more attention to his wife in those regards, and uh, if that's his impression, he needs to change it. Uh, male ego is a big problem, there's no question about that. The, uh, I think that is perhaps our um, second greatest fault. I mentioned communication is one, but I think the other one is our ego. Um, and We pretend to be far more in charge than we really are. Uh, inside, many times, we are weaklings. But we carry this aura that we have got it all together, and normally women can decipher that by the way uh so i I think the the fact that we might seem to be egotistical uh it's a manifestation um that we we are very insecure in ourselves, but we can't project that insecurity. And consequently, we tend to be seen to be very, very, very uh, egotistical in how we respond. But many, many times, believe in me, we are cowering on the inside, but we can't show it uh, because it will show an element of weakness. So uh, I don't know how to answer your question, to be very honest with you. I I don't know. I've never run across this in terms of, um, but I suppose it happens because you mentioned it. I hope it's not happening in your case. Otherwise, I think your husband need to go back to the Bible and understand that you do have valid questions. It's not a matter of your insecurity. Hope you have to respect your judgment and give you the right to ask certain questions. And his job should be to respond as best as he can.
0: We've got two and a half minutes left in the program tonight. I think we've got time for these final two questions. On March 7th, uh, 321 how the Roman Empire Constantine issued a civil decree making Sunday a day of rest from labor, stating all judges and city people and craftsmen shall rest upon the day of the sun. Question, are we not to follow the fourth commandment along with the others?
1: Obviously, this is an Adventist uh, person, and uh, you hold hold your Adventist doctrine about the Sabbath. But remember, the Christians were worshipping on Sunday long before this decree was made. I can spend a whole program here quoting you, the church fathers from the first century right now, that they have worshipped. And we did a program on that where we quote the church fathers that they met when the church met. So Constantine did not uh, make the church worship on Sunday. The church was worshipping long before Sunday. He accommodated the Christian after uh, he made Christianity the religion of the nation. But the Christians were meeting long before that on Sundays to celebrate the Lord's Day. So the decree that he made uh, is not that, he he just made it legal. But um, the Christians were worshiping on Sunday long before the decree. He just facilitated the decree because he made Christianity the religion of of Rome. Uh, So I I don't see the, the problem there. Um, it's, it was not that the Christian worship on Sabbath And he gave them the Sunday And then he, they started worshipping Sunday That's not what it was They were always worshipping On the first day of the week To celebrate the Lord's resurrection So there's no validity there That he, he, ch- he changed his Sunday, Sunday uh, Gave Sunday a day of, of rest But he didn't change Saturday to Sunday Sunday is always Sunday Saturday is always Saturday So I hope that is very, very clear
0: and one final question pastor my deceased grandmother was a high priestess for a cult i never met her but i always feel like there is a darkness around me could i be wrong
1: i think you could be right to be very honest with you and uh, not to show sure how close you were to that person uh, normally when that person is involved in those kind of activities they die a terrible death, unless they do what is called transference. That means you must pass it on to somebody. And if you were a small child, it's possible that they pass it on to you. So I think you might need to renounce that uh, if I were you and get before God and renounce whatever ancestral curse there might be as a result of Delvin Idikal.
0: Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Uh, as we wrapped up this topic on demonology, If you have questions or would like to see previous episodes, you can go to the That's Truth podcast online. Go Google That's Truth podcast and look for previous episodes where we talk about demonology. Be sure you tune in next week for another exciting, informative episode of That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program.